Father, each of us has a story. A story of how you have worked in our lives and brought us even to this place this morning. And we recognize that we would not be here apart from your gracious work in our lives. And may the rest of the story of our lives bring glory and honor to you. Amen. Please take a seat. Release the hounds. That's you four girls. And get your Bibles out this morning if you would. And to prove that I'm not, uh, I don't discriminate. Craig, can you stand up for a second? This is Craig, and he worked tirelessly out there. You know, I acknowledge Don and the others, but Craig did so much work out there, and I don't even know how he has knees, because they were literally down on their knees, tying together this mesh and screwing it into concrete. And so, Craig, we want to just thank you for all your work for for doing that. So, so I'm going to take a seat now, and, and Craig, come up and finish the sermon, if you would, and then we can all leave, all right? He's like, nope. <laughs> nope. Get your Bibles out. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. The title of today's sermon is Uncommon Love, and I have to admit there are some sermons that um, kind of easily come to you and some that don't. There are some sermons that are kind of naturally flow together and, and just you know make sense. This was not one of those sermons. This is a very, very difficult text. required a lot of work. Um, and I'll get into that in a minute here, but um, thank goodness that there are people that are a heck of a lot smarter than me that I can go find the answers to some of these tough questions so that I can accurately explain to you what our Lord is saying here in this sermon. Matthew 7, verses 7 to 12, it says this. Um, let me put this up here for us, Matthew 7, 7 to 12. Everybody there? It says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and a door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. And I want to begin this morning by talking about the relationship challenge. Last week on a Tuesday evening, my wife Eric and I found ourselves alone in the kitchen after a long day of work. And that's a minor miracle because we have all these young adults and teenagers in our house. And so it seems like we are never alone. But we found ourselves alone after a long day of work. Now, after a day of work, especially at our age, we're tired, right? And we were both just a little tired, and we were kind of ready to wind down for the night. Now, in order for my wife to relax, um, and I know that other ladies are like this, she needs everything organized and put away, okay? I know that is not Debbie, and I'm watching Carol shake her head. I knew those two, okay? And so... 
A lot of women are like that. Not all of them, but a lot. Now, passing by the kitchen sink, Erica noticed some dishes that needed to be rinsed off and put in the dishwasher. Now, because she was tired, the prospect of doing someone else's dishes, hint, hint, our kids, it was a bit overwhelming to her. I saw the dirty dishes earlier that evening, but I was sitting in a chair relaxing. Okay? Debbie's like, yes, that's me. I'm good with that. Carol's like, oh, she's pulling her hair out. You see, I do not need to have everything put in its place in order to relax. I will simply clean up before I end my evening. Now you can see where this is going, right? Two people who see the same situation but have completely different responses to handling it. Put another way, two worldviews were about to collide. Now, on top of working full-time, both Eric and I carry the lion's share of the work around the house, the cooking, the cleaning, the laundry, um, you know, the shopping, etc. In fact, she would say that, uh, you know, I probably do more than she does. Like, she, she has said that. But in this instance, in her tired state, she looked at the dishes in the sink, looked at me sitting in the chair, reclining, and she blurted out, will you do the dishes? I need some help around here. Now, mind you, again, she already acknowledged and knows that I do majority, more than she does around here. And she just told me, I need some help around here. Now, that comment did not sit well with me in my tired state. Because she was implying that I'm not carrying my weight around the house. But I held my tongue, I nodded my, my head, and, you know, thinking that, you know, I would do the dishes, you know, I'm going to do America, I nodded my head, and she walked away. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm just going to get my dinner, eat in a minute, and then I'll do the dishes. So that's honestly what I was thinking. But a few minutes later, I hear the water running behind me in the kitchen sink and see my wife doing the dishes. <laughs> so these women are laughing because it's obviously you can relate to this story. Okay? And I said, why are you doing the dishes? And why would I ask that question? Because I already nodded that I would do the dishes, but on my time, my schedule, Right? Her answer to my question, why are you doing your dishes, because I said I would, was this. Your body language led me to the conclusion that you weren't going to do it. So I will do it. Exclamation point, I'll do it. Now as you can guess, an argument followed. It was resolved before the end of the evening and we went to bed in peace. You need to know that. But my wife and I have been married for 27 years. And we still argue from time to time. 
And the question that has to be asked is, and there'll be a lot of questions to, to be asked in this sermon, is, well, why? After 27 years of marriage, you'd think that we would kind of, you know, work out all the kinks in our relationship by now, right? But obviously, if you've at all been married for any amount of time, you know, the answer is no. But why is that? Well, it's because, as I said before, it's the fall of, of mankind, Genesis chapter 3. And that makes relationships really difficult, right? Now, notice that, Mark, I'm not getting a lot of amens right now. <laughs> now, our Lord knows that relationships are difficult. And that's why, in his Sermon on the Mount, he now addresses the topic of relationships. It's Matthew chapter 7, the first 12 verses. Believe it or not, in June of 2020, but what, 14 months ago, we began our series on the Sermon on the Mount. I've used different series titles to cover this brilliant sermon of our Lord. The first one was called Different. That was Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes. The second one is called Countercultural. This one's called Kingdom Devotion. Now in the second sermon during the series Different, I present to you an outline of Matthew chapters 5 through 7, or the entire Sermon on the Mount from the theologian John Stott. And this is what he came up with. Okay? Now, it's important that you kind of see, for the purpose of this sermon, the whole picture, the big idea, the, the wide view of this sermon and how it breaks down. So there's a general outline of the Sermon on the Mount. A Christian's character, of course, that's referring to what? The Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are the peacekeepers and so on and so forth. Your influence, that's you're the light of the world, all right? Salt of the earth. Your righteousness, you don't divorce, you don't lust, you don't murder, all those things. Your piety, your, your religious practices and so on, your ambitions, how you deal with your money and other things. And now, of course, we come to a Christian's relationships. And then it will close with a Christian's commitment. But I want you to see that the breadth of this Sermon on the Mount is, is absolutely stunning. Because in three short chapters, Jesus lays out the standards for his kingdom. And you have to always keep this in the back of your mind. It's not just a sermon to read. He is literally laying out his standards if you want to be in his kingdom. And he started out with the standards related to self, then the standard related to the world, then the standard related to the word, then the standard related to morality, then the standard related to religion, then the standard related to money and possessions, and now we come to the standard related to human relationships. And we began that last week. Now the reason why he is doing this is because the standard set by the world, and particularly the Pharisees, I mean, they were just wrong. They were wrong about uh, all, it all. They were wrong about self. They were wrong about the word, the world. They were wrong about the law of God. They were wrong about morality. They were wrong about religion. They were wrong about money. They were wrong about possession. And they were definitely wrong about human relationships. So in this sermon, Jesus gives us a manifesto, kind of his policies, if you would, think of it that way, of living in his kingdom, and it is completely and totally comprehensive because it deals with, in terms of relationships, people in the family of God and people outside the family of God. It deals with how we treat other people and perceive them, and it deals with how we treat ourselves in self-examination. 
He covers how we treat God as a personal loving father and how we treat his word as a revelation of his heart. So all elements of the dimensions of Christian living within the kingdom are discussed in this masterpiece of a sermon. In fact, the sermon, this sermon, really encapsulate the message of the entire Bible. So in other words, you could take the entire Bible and reduce it to three chapters, and that's exactly what God did in his son, Jesus Christ. And let me show you how this. The summation of the law of God in the Old Testament, it's very clear. Two verses, you can just listen. You shall love the Lord your God with what? Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Leviticus Deuteronomy 6.5. Leviticus 19.18 says this, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now by summation I mean this. In the Old Testament, all that the Ten Commandments is, it's just nothing more than an expansion of those two principles. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So in other words, if I love God, I'm not going to worship other gods because it says not to do so in the Ten Commandments. I'm not going, I'm, I will observe the Sabbath because it says so in the Ten Commandments. Now if I love my neighbor as myself, I'm not going to covet another man's wife because it says don't do so in the Ten Commandments. I'm not going to steal from my neighbor, etc., etc., etc. So what the Ten Commandments do is they simply expand on loving God and loving others. In fact, the rest of the Bible expands and comments on these two laws. You're in Matthew, right? Go to Matthew chapter 22. Let me show you this. Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 40. Loving God and loving others, that is some a summary, a brief summary of the entire New Testament. Every other writing, story, example is nothing more than an explanation of loving God and loving others. And Jesus sums it up like this in Matthew 22, 37 to 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Verse 39, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 40, on these two commandments depends the whole law and the prophet. So Jesus said, you can sum up all biblical revelation in two relationships. And what are those two relationships? Loving God and loving others, right? Particularly relationships to brothers and sisters. Now it is this second commandment to love others, to love your neighbor as yourself, that Jesus addresses in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Go back to Matthew 7 and look at verse 12. Because you need to make this connection to understand where we're going this morning. Because by the way, Matthew 7, verse 12 is the final verse in the sermon. We say, well, there's more after that. Yes, it is, but he goes from summing up everything in verse 12 to an invitation in the rest of the sermon. And what does verse 12 say? So in everything, 
Do to others what you would have them do to you, for this what? Sums up the law and the prophets, what was said in Matthew 22, verse 40. So, again, at the end of verse 12, for this sums up the law and the prophets. That simply means this, folks, that the whole law, as it relates to mankind living in this world, can be summed up by love your neighbor as yourself. So another way of saying love your neighbor as yourself is what? Do to others, you see that? What you would have them do to you. So Matthew seven twelve is saying in a different way, love your neighbor as yourself. So loving God and loving your neighbor yourself sums up the entire law and prophets. And guess what? Do to others what you'd have them do to you, what does that do? It also sums up the law and prophets. So it's, it's saying the same thing, just worded differently. Now this is only logical if you think this through. Because we have a loving, caring Father. And when our relationship with Him is right, guess what? Our relationship with others will be right. You see, unless we are rightly related to God, it is impossible to fulfill what Jesus is commanding in Matthew 7, 12. Are you with me so far? You got that? Okay, so now, from now on, when you see or hear the golden rule, do to others what you would have them do to you, think of love your neighbor as yourself. It's saying the same thing. Now, here's how our Lord goes about this. We'll talk about the negatives and the positives of relationships. This section of the sermon that deals with relationships acknowledges that loving somebody, and you think this through, it makes sense, has two sides, a negative and a positive. So loving somebody means you don't do some things to them, right? You don't cheat on them. You don't hurt them. And the other side is you do do other things to them. So Matthew 7, verses 1 to 6, it's the negative aspect of a relationship. What is it that you're not supposed to do according to Matthew 7, verse 1? Don't judge, right? For in the way you judge, you'll be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. He goes on and talks about don't look at the speck in your, in your eye, uh, and so on and so forth. Do not what? Give what is holy to dogs. And do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. So this is talking about the negative aspect of a relationship. These are things that you don't do. So it's what we do not do to others. Now verses 7 to 12, which we just read this morning, that's the positive. It's what we do to others. Are you with me so far? Okay? Now, since the sum of the law and the prophets is based upon doing to others what you would have them do to you, i.e., or loving your neighbors yourself, then what we have to realize, folks, is in a relationship with other people, our Lord is saying this. Don't criticize. This is the negative. Don't judge. Don't condemn. Don't damn people who don't meet your standard. Again, that's Matthew 7, 1 through 6 from last week. But love is just more than not doing something. 
And that's why we have verses 7 through 12. Look at verse 12 again. The first three words are what? So in everything. Catch that? So what are we to do to people? It says in everything. Not some, not a few, not many, not most, and not almost, but in everything we do to others what you would have them do to you. So the fundamental positive statement that governs from God's perspective all human relationships, it's what you've heard since you were a child, do to others what you'd have them do to you. We call that the golden rule. Now you may be tempted to think that, okay, the golden rule, Matthew seven twelve, is common to the world and to other religions, but you would be mistaken. The golden rule was first revealed to the world by Jesus. We just read that. Since then, it has been poorly copied by other systems of religions. For example, the Jews, there's a famous rabbi, Hebrew rabbi named Hillel, that said this, what is hateful to yourself, do not to someone else. And among the Greeks, there was a king by the name of Nicholas. He said this, do not do to others the things which make you angry when you experience them at the hands of other people. And in the Orient, Confucius of Confucianism said this, what you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. Now here's the common theme through all this. All of these systems of religions operate under a negative or a positive aspect of relationships. Is it negative or positive? It's negative. It's not doing anything, right? You see that? Don't do something to somebody that you wouldn't want done to you. So it's a refraining from doing something. And the result in our world is that our world knows how not to do, again, the negative side of loving people, but it doesn't know how to do, which is a positive side of loving people. You with me so far? So all of these philosophies, all these religions teach not to do evil, right? But why? Why do they teach that? Well, as they interpret the golden rule, the motivation is to refrain or restrain from doing evil so nothing bad will happen to who? You, right? So the motive behind the golden rule is what then for the world? It's self-preservation. Catch that? And we operate that way. I mean, let's be honest with each other. We all operate that way. But let me put it more bluntly. The motive behind the, their golden rule is selfishness. Now, Paul said this very directly to the Philippians. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. There are a lot of verses that talk about how man is lover of self and is selfish. But I want you to look at it, this idea of these false religions and their version of the golden rule. Think of it this way by way of example. When driving a vehicle, why do you obey the speed limit? No, it's because you... Is it because you have a love for the Department of Transportation and their laws? Of course not. Or is it because you fear getting a ticket from the police or you fear being sued if you cause an accident? Now we don't speed 
What's that, the negative or the positive? We don't speed. Is that the negative or the positive? That's the negative, it's what we don't do. Because we don't want to pay for a speeding ticket or get sued if we're in an accident caused by our speeding. So the motive is again what? Selfishness. It's not a love for the law. Now watch this as we go even deeper. What is the motivation driving the selfishness? It's fear. Fear of getting a ticket or being sued. So the negative behavior from the world in terms of relationships and how the world operates is ultimately driven by fear. And fear is common to the unbelieving man because he's dominated by self-preservation. But the positive, what we do to others, is compelled by love because love comes from who? God. So do you see the difference? So the negative and positive of relationships. The world and its religions can restrain itself from doing certain things because of fear. But it will not find the power to do good things because men are lovers of themselves. They do not have the love of God shed abroad in their hearts. Think about this. Have you ever known any unbeliever who loves as Jesus requires? They may refrain, but they don't do the positive, right? They don't do the negative, but they certainly don't do the positive. Now the key to Matthew 12 is that we are to do the positive, i.e. of a relationship. We are to do as we would have them do. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they did or they will respond in kind to us. Okay, this is where it gets hard. In fact, we may know that what we do, the positive thing for somebody, they won't return the favor. But that doesn't change what we should do. Right? What are we to do? Do to others as we'd have them do to ourselves. Love our neighbor as ourselves. Now in the context of Matthew 7, do unto others as you have them do to you, what does that mean? Well, it means that we don't judge with a critical spirit. That's the negative, right? We don't judge. The positive is this. Out of love, we reach out. Because that's what love does. And it does to others what it would wish to be done to itself. Even though it may know that it will never be done in return. Now that is impossible for mankind in bondage to sin and selfishness and fear. But as kingdom citizens, certainly, folks, we should not be characterized by selfishness. We should not be characterized by fear. In fact, Paul reminded Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but what? Power and what? Love and self-control. You have the power to love like God. Okay? Thus you can have the ability to fulfill the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor yourself. Do to others 
as you would have done to yourself. So we have the power to love as God loves. Now Paul also said that the Holy Spirit who dwells inside every believer produces fruit. And what is the first fruit of the Spirit? What is it? Love. Love, joy, peace, patience, so it's love. You see? So kingdom citizens ought to be able to go beyond the world standard of selfishness and fear and to be characterized by love. Folks, if the life of God pulses in the soul of a man or a woman, and if the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts, and if the command to love your neighbor as yourself is repeated from one end of the scripture to the other as a living reality, not just an idea, but a living reality, then we had better respond obediently. I mean, we're talking about a radical life change difference. Because the world does not look like what I am describing to you. And that goes right into the, this next point, an uncommon love. So the question that really is before us is this, and this is the question that we have to wrestle with, is how do I love others in such a countercultural, radical way? I mean, how many of you have had that type of love modeled for you? I mean, no one's raising their hand, right? I mean, if, has it ever really been modeled for you? Other than to Jesus Christ, but in a visible setting, no. Well, the answer to that, how do we live this out, is found in verses 7 to 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you then, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Again, I said this before and I'll say it again. Discovering the logic and the flow of, of our Lord's sermon in this particular portion of the sermon has been challenging. We had to really work to discover his train of thought because this section appears to be disjointed. It doesn't flow well with the rest of the sermon. Here's why. Look at verse 7. What is verse 7? Is it a fact or a promise? A promise is, if you do this, then you will get this, right? So is that a fact or a promise? Verse 7, it's a promise. Verse 8 is something more than just an affirmation of the promise stated in verse 7. Okay? Verses 9 through 11 is an illustration of that promise. Okay? And then verse 12 is kind of the main theme or the principle. It sums up the entire sermon, but it also is summing up this thought in verses 1 through 12. Now, I was taught in school, and perhaps you were as well, that you begin a paragraph with what? Your main point, your theme sentence, right? Followed by an illustration, and then maybe the final point or promise. But what does our Lord do here? He reverses it. You see that? He starts with the promise, then the illustration, then the point, <laughs> the main theme. And so to give you the full understanding, let's go back to verse 1. 
of Matthew 7. The Lord has been encouraging his listeners to refrain from doing what? Verse 1. Judging, right? That condemning, censorious um, judgment. He has, at the same time, admonishing us to make righteous judgments. That's verse 6. Now he's, so he's advised them, us, his followers, not to be hypercritical, yet to be critical. Not to be impatient, but humbly patient. Now a question I have for us this morning, another question is this. Do you feel qualified for such a task? I don't. Now here's the answer to that question. Jesus says this is the answer. It's a promise that's realized through persevering prayer. So he is urging the necessity of persevering prayer that is also accompanied by earnest effort. And by the way, this call to fervent, persistent prayer, it not only applies for wisdom in the current context we're talking about, but in all matters of the Christian faith, particularly every spiritual need. But the point is so important to Jesus that he doesn't just give a promise of answered prayer, but he follows up the promise in verse 7 with an assurance of answered prayer in verse 8. Do you see that? So pray earnestly, and I'm going to encourage you again to do the same thing I just said in verse 7. Now, it's plain to see in this section on prayer the rising scale of intensity in Jesus' words. It begins with asking, talking to God. And that implies humility, folks. Like, i.e., I am dependent upon someone else to meet a need I have, and I'm not too proud to ask for something. That's humility. It also implies when I ask, I'm conscious that I have a need. And also conscious I have faith in a personal God with whom we can have fellowship with and who is willing to answer my prayers. That's all that goes into asking. But seeking, now what, listen to this, it's asking plus acting. Okay? So it's not, it goes beyond asking, now it's acting on top of it. And this implies earnest praying. I may faithfully, for example, ask for a deeper knowledge of the Bible. You ever done that before? But that request must also be accompanied by what? I can diligently study the Bible. I got to meditate in the Bible. I need to attend church. I need to live a life in harmony with God's will. So it's not just asking. It's asking plus acting. Now knocking is asking plus acting plus persevering. Consistency. So one knocks again and again and again and again until the door is opened. Now we gain some valuable insight into what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 7 in the call to persevering in prayer by asking, seeking, and knocking when he used the same words in another setting. Just listen to this. This is in Luke 11, 5 to 13. Then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves. In other words, basic necessities. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. 
And from inside, he answers and says, do not bother me. The door has already been shut. My children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Now listen to this. This is verse 9. This is where it ties into what Jesus is saying in Matthew 7. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks find. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Does it sound familiar? Verse 11, now suppose one of your fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he's asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Do you see how this connects to Matthew 7, verses 7 to 12? Okay, so clearly Jesus means that we must continually knock on heaven's door until it's opened, until we get our answer. So why persevere in prayer in the context of Matthew 7? This is where it gets difficult, okay? Who is able to discriminate and discern and to judge to the standard that's set in verses one through six? None of us feel competent to do that, right? Who is it that's able to see sin in a believer's life and lovingly go and restore that believer? You feel confident in doing that? No, I don't either. But who is able to know when you've got somebody that you can't or that you don't want to share the precious truths of the gospel with because you know they'll simply reject it and trample it and tear it apart. Who knows these things? Well, there's an answer. There is only one. It is God. And God alone who has that kind of discernment. And so if you want to have it, if you want this insight, if you want this knowledge, folks, there is no formula. There is no to apply. There's no strategy to follow. The only place you're going to find that kind of knowledge in this current context of Matthew 7 is you've got to be down on your knees. You've got to be praying. And you've got to be earnestly praying. You've got to be asking, seeking, knocking. And you keep asking and seeking and knocking. Because it's exactly, by the way, what James has said in 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, and who in here lacks wisdom, all of us, what do we do? Ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. James knew about praying. James' nickname, this is James, the brother of Jesus. Do you know what his nickname was? Camel knees. He was on his knees so much that his, his, his knees were kind of scarred over and disformed, looked like the knees of a camel. You ever see a thin leg, the wide knee of a camel? That was James because he spent so much time in prayer. You see, and this is really what I want you to understand, God did not create us to follow formulas or strategies. If that were true, he would have given us a rule book and said, you know, you're on your own, folks. I've given you what you need. God is not some distant, indifferent, impersonal deity who created the world Wound up like a clock, set it loose, and leaves us to work out our lives on our own? No. God doesn't want that. 
What he wants is a relationship. And so he gives us enough truth so that we're responsible for it and enough mystery so that we're dependent for it. You see that? So we persevere in prayer because we're in a relationship with a loving Heavenly Father who has all the wisdom, all the discernment we need. But we also, and I don't want you to miss this point because this just floored me when I understood this. It's just shame on me that I've read this passage over and over and over again. I never really studied it, but it just blew me away when, when I discovered this. We also persevere in prayer because of this radically abundant promise. I mean, Matthew 7, 1 through 6 says, stop criticizing. Now, Matthew 7, 12 says to start loving. Well, how specifically do we live out our relationships with one another in such a manner that I am doing to others as I would do to myself? I am loving my neighbor as myself. How do we actually do that? Yes, we are to pray for the strength to do so, but there is more. Everyone look at Matthew 7, verses 7 and 8. Because they say that whatever we ask and seek and knock, what's going to happen? We're going to receive it, right? Now think that through for a moment here. Everyone look at me. Whatever you ask, whatever you seek, whenever you knock, it might be given to you. No, 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 no. It will be given to you. Do you understand the enormity of this promise? The magnitude of what Jesus is saying and the freedom he is offering. And let me explain because I know that I'm confident that we don't understand what he's saying here because here is what he is saying. This is so important, folks. I put this point up here. So if you're falling asleep, wake up, all right? Check this out. This is what he's saying here. We can feel free to do to others. I can give to others, sacrifice for others, and to love others. Because we can be confident that in giving up all, not some, but all, we have to someone else, we have an ultimate and eternal resource to replenish our own needs. That's the context. That's verses 1 through 6 and verse 12. Do to others, right? as you have them do to you. So the promise of God to his children is not that we, or it is that we ask for, that what we ask for and what we seek for and what we knock for, it will be given to us. This frees us up to bestow anything and everything we have on the one that has the need. In other words, it's the exact opposite of being possessive and selfish, which is the way of the world. And it makes sense. We should be completely different than the world, right? We can do to others what I would do for myself without fear of having nothing left. Because all I have to do is what? Turn to my loving Heavenly Father, who gives us bread for every day and takes care of us in every way, and we shall never do without that which we need. Now, did you know that what this was saying?
I mean, this is a wonderful thought, isn't it? And let me give you a modern day example of what this may look like for us. Let's say you have a cell phone and it dies. And so you need a new one. And you have just enough money in your budget uh, for a new phone. And so you're on the way to make this purchase of a new phone and you learn of a neighbor who maybe isn't as financially blessed as you are, but he or she is also in the need of a phone. What do you do? Well, you give, I'll give my money for a new phone to my neighbor because I know that's what I would do to myself because I want do to others as do to yourself. I'll go without trusting God. I'll go without trusting God to replenish my finances so I can get a new phone. I'm going to go without, folks. I'll give up my phone, but I'm going to trust God that knows that a phone is pretty much a need today, and he will provide it for me. You see that? Now that is, my, I guess the question is, now is that a far cry from the way we live? Of course it is. We better believe it, because why? We're selfish and motivated by fear instead of being motivated by love. And so he gives you this, I mean, it's, it is a, an astounding promise. And in this context, it means I can do to others, which means a negative, I don't have to criticize. And that is what is so dangerous about social media, by the way. Something happens, and then people do what on social media? They comment on it. They criticize it. They get thumbs up and thumbs down. It's like I have an expectation and a right and a responsibility to criticize. Well, is that what you want done to yourself? But if you're doing that, then you, you reap what you sow, it will be done to you, right? Then don't do that. Do to others, you want done to yourself. So stop criticizing do this so it makes a mistake what would you want encouragement go on social media encourage then does that make sense i mean but we don't think this way and we have to start to think this way that's how a citizen of his kingdom thinks and acts again it is different it is countercultural. it is the the way of his kingdom now I'm going to close with a final reason to love others with this, what I call a radical love. It's called a spitting image. In Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, it says this, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God is a fragrant aroma. Now people say that our kids look like us and your kids look like you. But not only do they look like us, but they are us. They are like us. So if I claim to be a child of God, if you claim to be a child of God, there ought to be some resemblance <coughs> of your heavenly father. I mean, if God had a social media account, a Twitter account, or a Facebook account, would he be criticizing? Now, this is where the illustration is helpful in this 
sermon. Look at verses 9 through 11. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give your gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? See, verse 9 here, and I want to highlight the character of God, it refers to deception. In that time, people used bread that was round and small in the shape of a, like a stone. It looked like the limestones that you'd find in the shoreline of Israel. So a father could very easily trick a child when they asked for bread, which is the necessity of life, by giving his or her daughter or son one of these stones. But would a loving father do such a thing? No. Of course not. Verse 10 refers to defilement. A fish was a clean animal, according to the ceremonial law, that could be eaten. But it implies that a snake, a cooked snake or an eel, depending on your version, was an unclean animal that could not be eaten. And would a father purposely make his son or daughter violate the law of God? No. Now verse 10 also refers to destruction. Not in Matthew 7, but I read to you earlier in Luke eleven twelve. 12, it adds this. Or if he asks for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? Now scorpions in that part of the world were large. They would obviously, remember this, they tuck their legs and their claws underneath and sleep. And from above, they looked exactly like an egg. So if the son asks his father for an egg, is his father going to give that which only deceives him and defiles him but also destroys him? Would any father do that? And of course, no earthly father in his right mind would do that. He will not purposely defile his son. He will not purposely destroy his son. And if we now, catch this, who are evil, and by the way, we are evil even when we give good gifts to our children, like bread and fish and an egg. We're still evil. If we who are evil out of a sense of parental love give to our children, then how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to them that ask him? I mean, if evil, sinful fathers give their kids the basics of life, they meet their needs, okay? Don't you think God will do that? Don't you think God will provide for you? Now again, promised that he would meet your needs. We went over that, right? You pray for your daily needs. He's going to, don't worry about what you eat or drink. He's going to provide for you, right? And he refers to that in what we just read here in Matthew 7. You need food? I'm going to provide it for you. But in this context, it refers to not food. It refers to how I live in my relationships, how I love specifically other people. I don't criticize. In fact, I do the opposite. I do to others as I would have them do to me. And God, who is the absolute giving father, by the way, who gives us all that we need, and he knows full well that we can never give back to him anything in kinder measure, do you think he will provide for you? Of course he will. We do to others as we would do to us because we are in a relationship with a loving Heavenly Father who has all the wisdom, discernment, and power we need. 
we do to others as we would do to us because his promise frees us up to do it for certainly he'll replenish everything that we do for others. And we do to others as we do for us because we're called to act like him. We should look like God. We should bear some of his resemblance. So I just want to simply close with this, and I've been closed the last few weeks with these, but again, characteristics of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. We add this last one here. Remember all these? I'll start with P. And the whole idea is I keep going over this over and over and over again. I'm repeating the same thing over and over again. What's the hope for you out there? That you're going to get it over and over and over and over again. See all these different points? You've seen them before. Those are the Beatitudes. We're going through the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? The presence delays society's decay. What's that referring to? Salt and light. Right? That's us. It's our presence, what it does. Anyways, we get through all these, and this is where it ends. Last week, we passed on criticizing, and what we do, this is this week, we powerfully love others. I mean, it's a radical love. So I know I've thrown a lot at you this morning, but it's a really simple point. I want you to start loving. It's an uncommon love that he is saying here. I have, you are free to be not bound or in bondage to self, to radically give generously <coughs> because your heavenly Father will replenish what you need. All you have to do is what? Ask, seek, and knock. In this context, it's to radically love. It is an uncommon love. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you have given us the strength. Well, first of all, I thank you that you've created us to be in a relationship with you. That out of that loving relationship, you provide for us. You promise to give us what we need to live differently. We want to be like you. And I pray that there would be a radical change in our lives from this moment forward in how we relate to other people. Keep this just important truth before our very eyes and in the forefront of our minds as we relate to one another. And may this song that we close with bring a smile to your face. Amen. Would you stand and let's worship with our final song this morning. <laughs>